Well, I tell you what, there's all kinds of different traditions, aren't there, to celebrate Christmas with. And uh, Alan and his family, okay, you know, they're, they're looking for Jesus, and that's a good thing, isn't it, on Christmas? On that first Christmas, there were uh, all kinds of people who were looking for Jesus. There was uh, old Simeon, who the uh, Bible describes as being a righteous man that God had promised that he would not die before he saw the Christ. So he was looking forward to seeing Jesus. And there were the shepherds, of course. They heard from the angels on the hillside that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So they went into Bethlehem looking for Jesus. And then there were the magi who came from the east following a star looking for Jesus. We all know about those, right? Okay. But the one that maybe a lot of people don't think about as looking for Jesus as well was King Herod, the king of Palestine. When the Magi came and they they came to King Herod, uh, the response of King Herod was, well, come on back and tell me where he is because I want to find him too. He was looking for Jesus. And the difference really between that first group of people and King Herod is this, that the first group of people was looking for Jesus because they knew who he was and wanted to go and honor him. But King Herod King Herod wanted to kill Jesus. He wanted to do away with Jesus. When it comes to somebody as significant as Jesus, all of us are going to find ourselves really in one or the other of those two camps, okay? Either looking for Him like the Magi or looking for Him like Herod. Now, the Magi. The Magi were a, kind of a combination of scientist and holy man and advisor to the kings and to governments. In Persia, which was at that time the, uh, the major enemy of Rome, there was an official court position of Magi. So when people would read this account, they would know exactly what it is that they were talking about. They were talking about people from that direction. And in that direction, it says from the east, which is that direction, uh, we would also find old Babylon, which was the place where the Israelites had spent 70 years in exile. And now these people, these, these magi, however many there were, tradition says three, came to King Herod. And Herod was one that was kind of paranoid in many ways. And one of those ways was that he was really afraid of an invasion from the Persians. That's why he erected a series of forts on the east side of his kingdom. And here were these magi, court advisors, advisors to the kings of Persia, showing up on his, on his doorstep, asking him this question, could you give us directions? Could you give us directions to the newborn king of the Jews? And he had to look at them and say, "Uh, excuse me? You know, thanks for the compliment. I'm a little bit older than newborn, but here's the king right here, okay? I'm right in front of you. But if there is a newborn king of the Jews, that is a different matter. That's a horse of a different color. That means there's competition. And the competition meant that he wanted to do away with the competition. He wanted to do away with Jesus. Now, Roman, Rome had given Herod his throne, and the Persians were the enemies of Rome, which put Herod in a very awkward position here because 
It, what it meant was that if he did not show some kind of honor and respect to the Persians, they could wind up invading. On the other hand, if he did show any kind of a favor to the Persians, the Romans could take away his throne. So what would he do? Well, Herod seemed to uh, come up with a plan, a plan whereby he might be able to capture and kill the Messiah, if only the Magi would cooperate. They, they headed off to uh, Bethlehem after receiving directions, saw the star, and there, Matthew 2, verse 11, it says this, On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshipped him. So the question is, why did the Magi come all this way to this place? It was because they wanted to worship this Jesus. They wanted to find him and show him honor. They would have had copies of the prophecies of the Jews when they had lived in Babylon all of those years, such as the book of Daniel that prophesies about the coming Messiah. They would have had that, and they believed that this star that they saw was the fulfillment, the sign of the fulfillment, rather, of those prophecies. They were convinced of this, so they knew who Jesus was, and they came to worship him. Herod, on the other hand, he represents the other way of seeking for Jesus. And for Herod, he is one who also represents the darkness. It says, it says this in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, after the Magi foiled Herod's plans by going back by a different route, Herod was angry, and he came up with another plan. He calculated what the Magi had said, and he figured that this child, this newborn king of the Jews, must be somewhere under two years old. So he made these orders. Herod gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Herod was willing to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem, two years old and under, because he figured that among them would be the one. That's how badly he wanted to do away with Jesus. Herod represented the forces of darkness. And for the darkness to exist, it must do something about the light. Because darkness is the absence of light. And if the light no longer existed, then the dark could exist. With the presence of the light, it meant that there was a threat to the darkness. So it's like this. Imagine that you are in a cave, and in this cave there is absolutely no light whatsoever, none. It is pitch black. You don't dare take a step one direction or another because you don't know what's there. So what you do is you begin to rummage around in your pockets, and man, at least you can feel, you know, so, and, and there you find some matches, and you take the matches out, and you can't see even the matches because it's that pitch black. It's terrifying, but you can feel it, so you light a match. And this little, tiny light illumines the cave so that now you can see. And the darkness is converted by the light. It is transformed by the light. But for the darkness to continue, it must do something about the light, even a light this tiny, this small. Likewise, there was a light, a match that was lit that night in Bethlehem. And for the darkness to continue, 
it had to do something about the light. Now, God is talked about in Scripture as being light. Darkness is that which is not God. And God sent this light, this new light, lit a match in Bethlehem to be able to bring light into our darkness. Darkness is that which is not God. So when we talk about darkness, it's not necessarily uh, this gross evil that we might think of. You know, oftentimes people think of, oh boy, you know, we're talking about Hitler or Darth Vader or something like that. No, it, it is just the, it, it's, it's the absence of the light. It's the absence of God. And with this absence of God, it is, it is something that uh, John chapter 3 talks about when he says this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Years ago when I was in my internship, I, I was serving in a congregation in inner city Minneapolis. And uh, in this congregation, I did uh, youth ministry and a number of other things. And, and it was reaching out to families that were you know, pretty broken and dysfunctional and and things like that, and, and uh, a lot of the kids, you know, didn't really know anything about Scripture and things like that. There was this one kid that I had there that uh, I was at a youth retreat, and I was retelling the story of Daniel in the lion's den, which is a pretty common, uh, commonly known story in Scripture. And after I retold the story, I sat down next to him, and he leaned over to me and said, hey, that was a great story. Where'd you get it? He had no idea you know, uh, about what the Bible contained. Well, his mom began coming after he began coming, and she had been through a lot of things in life and uh, had kind of a rough past. And, and, and uh, yet she began to discover this light of Christ as beginning to invade her darkness and to convert that. As a matter of fact, she, she not only grew in her faith, but she became one of the leaders of the church. She uh, became a member of the church council. But after a while, she stopped going. And so I went to visit her. I, I, you know, I didn't know what happened. There was no communication. And I, I stopped, and, and you know, we'll, we'll call her Janet D. And I said, Janet, where have you been? What's going on? And she said to me, well, I can't go back to that church. I said, well, why not? She said, because the people are judging me there. And, and I said, Janet, what do you mean? They, they don't even know what you're doing. How can they possibly judge you? But for her, she knew what she was doing. Whatever it was, I don't even remember what it was. But, but she knew what she was doing. And in her mind, she could not come into the light. Well, she needed something more than that. She, she needed to know this. She needed to, to, to know that the church is a place that's, that's really not for perfect people. Now, the church is a hospital for sinners. And the church really is a place for people who don't want to play the game anymore. You know, who, who want to be real and come into the light. That's what the light's about. The light is about the truth. And we can do that. We can come into the light because we know that this one who's come into the, this world for us to shine in our darkness has done so so that we might receive his grace and his forgiveness. And in doing that, it's okay to come into the light. 
But Janet, you know, I don't think that she ever, ever made it back to church. At least she didn't make it back to our church. I, I, don't, I don't know if she ever went anyplace else. But a choice has to be made. And it seemed as though she was making hers. And that is to either seek Jesus like the Magi, which is to honor Him and to worship Him, or like Herod, which is to do away with Him, to push Him away. And there's two ways that you could be like Herod. The first is really what Herod did, which is to try to outright kill the light. That's kind of the blunt method. And Herod did it. The Pharisees did it. The problem is it's way too obvious, and God simply moves the child away to Egypt or later on resurrects his son. But there's another way, a second way, which is actually more devious, more sinister, more common, more subtle. And that's this, to ignore the light, to pretend it doesn't exist, to pretend that it really is of no value. Now, think of it this way, that, uh, you know, which would be worse, to have someone be angry with you or to be, you know, with that other person, just the two of you in a room and have them act as though there is no other carbon life form in the room with them that you didn't even exist. I think the latter would be worse. Because at least if they're angry with you, it shows that you are worth being angry about. But with this second way, it is treating God as though He didn't exist. Now, words might be one thing and, and actions another, but, but really at the base of all of this, what we can see is that, that this way of being Herod thrives, feeds, on self-centeredness. It feeds on self-focused person. And out of that comes evil acts. Out of that comes, to, comes all kinds of personal and relational kinds of problems that needs the light. There's not a lot of peace on earth or goodwill toward men that is found in this way of being Herod. These days, you know, you can look around, you know, during the Christmas season, it's amazing, you know, uh, look at the traffic, look at drivers, and it's amazing how much uh, short-temperedness and how much self-centeredness there is out there, which is probably what those drivers think about us too. But, you know, um, there's a lot of that out there, isn't it? And yet in the midst of all of this, there's a match that's lit. The light still burns, and there are those who seek Him like the Magi, to honor Him, to be transformed by Him. You know, what this looks like, if we were to seek Him like the Magi, is something like this. We look at this contrast. Herod, its Scripture says, was disturbed. He was stressed out. He was worried. While all that was going on for Herod, and not a whole lot of happiness there going on in the palace, here are the Magi with a completely different kind of a picture. Matthew 2, verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now, overjoyed means more than joyed, okay? Overflowing with joy. That much joy. So much joy, I can't even contain it. So we've got that contrast. Stressed out Herod? Overjoyed Magi. Why? Because the Magi found what it was they were looking for. And this is what they did. They worshipped Him. 
And while later on he would give the Magi presents, he would give them gifts, now the focus was on him. The focus was on this light that came into the world, and they gave him gifts, gave him presents. It was all about him. They experienced a joy that really Herod would never be able to experience because they sought him to honor him and worship him. You know, when we follow and, and seek and, and, and search for him like the Magi, we can ask you know, and look forward to these things with him. We can, we, we can ask this question, what difference might that make for your life? How might you react differently to people because you follow the light How much you you react differently to people who follow the darkness because you follow the light? Well, back in World War I, there was a night when this would be put to the test. It was the most brutal of wars. The Germans were in one set of trenches, and the British were in another set of trenches. And between them was this thing that was called no man's land, where nothing could live, not a tree, not a shrub, not an animal, not a man. And if you would dare poke, poke your head out of your trench, you would probably risk having it shot off. There was tremendous loss of life during that war. It was a tragic, tragic war. But one night, one Christmas night, something miraculous took place. The British soldiers were dug down into their trench, and they heard the sound of singing coming from the German trenches. And it was a tune they recognized. It was the tune of Silent Night, sung in German. Well, the British soldiers began to sing it in their own language. They sang it in English, and they joined in with the Germans singing Silent Night. And the result of that was bringing hope and peace to this place that didn't seem to have any hope of peace. In just a moment, we're going to see a reenactment of this. And when we do that, Uh, I'm going to ask you to do this. As you watch that, think about this. If this light that was lit in Bethlehem can silence these guns, what might he be able to do for the guns that you have in your life? If you can see the kind of peace that he can bring to this place, albeit temporary for that day, What kind of peace might he be able to bring to you?